0: Uh, We're going to be looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'll remind you of the story again, because we will read from uh, Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning at verse uh, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. What is written in the law, he replied? How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, And you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead." pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Neighbours should be there for one another That's when good neighbours become good friends. And aren't you glad I didn't sing it? (laughs) Speak of neighbours and many will immediately think of that Australian soap of the same name. And I suspect that there are quite a few people who are more familiar with the activities and problems of Ramsey Street residents than of their own neighbours adjacent to where they live. You see, our society and our attitudes have changed significantly and alarmingly even over the past 20 years or so. Today it's considered wise to keep oneself to oneself. It's best not to get involved. Look after number one, support your family, look out for your friends, and that's it. But if society has become so introverted... I wonder what's happened to the church. What about our church? Has the attitude of keeping ourselves to ourselves rubbed off onto you and me, I wonder? And anyway, maybe we have enough problems of our own without getting involved with the problems of strangers. Yet Jesus is very clear on his teaching about the responsibility of the church, and that's you and me, uh, towards the world at large. He tells us elsewhere that the Christian is to be the salt that preserves the sin-sick, morally decaying world in which we live. He said this uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Well, I believe there's a whole raft of things that we can learn from our reading this morning. And though it's a very familiar parable to most of us, I'm sure it's worth another visit to see what is contained in this parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, let's look at the scene for a start where this parable occurred. We discover that it's at the centre of an intense theological dialogue between Jesus on the one hand and an expert in Jewish law on the other. And the first thing we notice then is this challenge directed towards Jesus, a challenge to Jesus. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at first sight, that seems a reasonable approach. The expert in the law stood up. He addresses Jesus as teacher, and both of those things are entirely appropriate to the etiquette demanded by that situation at the time of Jesus. At first view, they might appear as gestures of politeness and respect. But let me assure you, these are mere veneers. They are quite false. The actual motive of the expert in the law is far from honorable. We read that he was out to test Jesus. And the word that comes out of our translation here as test can also mean the word to tempt. In fact, it's exactly the same word that Jesus uses to rebuke Satan when he was being tested in the wilderness, where Jesus said to Satan, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the same word as that word. So what we actually have here is a confrontational meeting. The expert in the law is out to score points against Jesus. His intention is intellectual aggression. But furthermore, and we we read a little uh, later on in verse 29, we find that the expert in the law is also out to justify himself. So if you put those things together, you can see this is quite a tense encounter. And yet, we immediately see the supreme wisdom of the Lord Jesus as he responds to this actually aggressive question from the expert in the law with another question. Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What a wise response. You see, Jesus here has already cleverly turned the tables and the expert in the law is asked to respond on the very subject that he's meant to be an expert in. And we have that answer from that expert in the law. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And you know, the expert in the law at this point has given the perfect biblically-based answer. It couldn't have been better. Because what he's actually done is he's quoted from the Old Testament. First of all, from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, which tells us about the paramount importance of loving God with our heart and with our soul and with our strength and with our mind. And then he follows with a second quotation, which is taken from Leviticus 19 um, verse 18, which tells us about the need that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So... There's no better answer, is there? These two quotations taken from the Old Testament say it all and summarize perfectly what a person's duty is, both in relation to God and also in relation to mankind. And he even gets the priority order right, because it's only when we love God perfectly that we are then able to show love to our neighbors perfectly. And Jesus is the first to admit that this is a good answer. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. An actual better translation of that is do this and you will be living. And I'll use that translation as we go along. You see, if any human being would actually fulfill this law of love to perfection, then he or she would obviously obtain eternal life because perfect love precludes all sin. And Jesus has also wisely deflected the original confrontational question by prompting the expert in the law to answer his own question uh, through this reply. Jesus does not actually answer the question that the expert in the law uh, offers but he turns it around such that the expert in the law answers his own question. And you know, to love God perfectly actually addresses the first four of the Ten Commandments. And to love one's neighbor perfectly addresses the remaining six of the Ten Commandments. So the full Ten Commandments have been encapsulated in this neat reply. And you know, Jesus never said that we can ignore the law of God. He did not come to abolish God's law, but rather to uphold it. Now, of course, a Christian is a member of God's kingdom by definition. Therefore, we also should adhere to the Ten Commandments, to love God and to love our neighbours. It's part of being in God's kingdom. Such is the infallible Mark, indeed, of the one who has the guarantee of eternal life. If you have been saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus, then you will be required to love your neighbor. You cannot be a Christian and simply do what you like. That's not part of what it's about. And it is the most amazing and unquestionably wonderful thing to know that we are saved to eternal life. But we have an associated responsibility and obligation to both love God and to love our neighbor. So the lawyer's answer here is actually probably better than he himself realized, because it is only when we love perfectly that we perfectly fulfill the law of God. And you could argue in one sense that his original question was, sort of pointless anyway, um, because how could anyone actually do anything to be able to inherit eternal life? You see, an inheritance is something that is freely given. We cannot earn an inheritance even by doing good. It's an act of grace, and so too is the receipt of eternal life. We are Christians not because of what we have done, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus confirms to the expert of of the law the correctness correctness of his answer and, and concludes with that challenge. Do this and you are living. For when we love God and when we love our neighbor perfectly, then we start living in the very way that God wants us to live as members of his eternal kingdom? Well, maybe that perfect answer, we could say, it's game set and match to the expert in the law. Or is it? You see, there is actually a hidden problem here that Jesus is about to tease out. We have the perfect answer to the question. The theory is correct, but what about the practice? Why has Jesus added this phrase, do this and you will be living? The answer concerning eternal life is to love God and our neighbor to perfection. But there, indeed, is the very problem. It cannot be done. A human being cannot love perfectly, cannot love God perfectly, cannot love their neighbor perfectly. So far from setting a trap for Jesus, the expert in the law who came to test Jesus has actually exposed himself as one who knows what the law demands but is incapable of putting it into practice. That law that encapsulates the Ten Commandments and is summarized by these two quotations that the expert in the law gives us is that we should love God with all of our being and that we should love our neighbour as ourself and with no limits, no line drawn. There's no list of tick boxes that we must complete. We can't opt out when we don't feel like behaving in that perfect way. And the requirement of these laws of love is limitless and eternal. But the expert in the law doesn't give up. He's come to score points against Jesus and he is absolutely determined to do just that. In many ways his first question has sort of backfired, hasn't it? But he's not ready yet to admit defeat. Luke tells us, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The expert in the law is not about to back off. He wants to win this encounter, so he ups the ante. And you know, it's actually a rather clever trap. Because for him and his fellow Jews who would be watching this public debate he would know that the neighbor for the Jews would be limited to fellow Jews and nobody else. They were the elite, and he was setting a trap to see what Jesus would say. For if Jesus answered that his neighbor was his fellow Jew and nobody else, he would upset the Gentiles. And if he answered that everyone was his neighbor, he would further alienate the Jewish community a perfect trap has been set. And although Luke doesn't actually record that, we can almost imagine a sudden look of smugness on the face of the expert of the law. We have then the perfect trap. But this is when Jesus delivers the parable of the Good Samaritan. So let's look at that parable now the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious. It's apparently a descending road which goes through the desert and it stretches for about 17 miles. And apparently the Crusaders built a small fort halfway along this road to protect the pilgrims uh, during the Middle Ages. Such was the danger of this road. And it's this road, then, that is the scene of this violent crime where the victim is robbed, stripped, beaten up, and left for dead by a group of bandits. Now, the story leaves out the actual identity of the man. We're not given his name. we are told nothing about him particularly. And yet the Jewish audience listening to Jesus would naturally assume that he would have been a Jewish traveller. We're told by Luke that he was left half dead. And anybody passing by would have found it very difficult, I think, to identify even the nationality of this man. He was wearing no clothes because the robbers had taken those away. And he was unconscious, so he couldn't say who he was. So very much an unknown person. And we read in the parable that the first person to arrive on the scene is a priest, Now, a priest on the basis of status and custom was most likely riding rather than walking. Uh, I'm sorry to be in conflict with the Lego uh, scene here, but I believe the priest would have been riding, uh, not walking. And I think that's particularly significant because uh, it suggests to us that the priest would have had the same uh, means at disposal to him as the Samaritan. Uh, they both had an animal on which to ride, which then could be used as a suitable means of transport to help rescue the victim of this robbery. But Jesus informs us that not only does the priest do nothing, but he purposely moves to the other side of the road in order to avoid the unconscious victim. You see, there's a problem for the priest because if this unconscious person was actually dead, and the priest had touched him, if a priest touches a corpse, then that would have left him ritually unclean, and he would not therefore be able to carry out his priestly duties for a period of time. And we can argue that's probably a reason why the priest went by on the other side. And then we have the second passerby, the Levite, who also fails to stop and come to the aid of the victim. Um, He's most likely on foot, and uh, he too would have wished to have maintained his ritual purity, although for him the consequences of touching a potentially dead body was not quite as severe as it would have been for the priest. But nevertheless, he does nothing. And uh, notice that Jesus has actually set up a progression. Um, We start off with the rank of the priest, which is at the highest. We then move to the Levite. And you can imagine the Jewish audience at this point are thinking, well, who's going to come next? Um, It's going to be priest, Levite, Jewish layman, and maybe Jewish hero. All good stories have three characters. But Jesus does the unthinkable. For the hero in this story is not going to be a good Jew, but instead a good Samaritan. And this choice of hero is completely shocking. We don't see it because we don't quite fit into the context of the day. But Jesus is playing with dynamite here. This is very serious stuff. For as far as any Jew of the day was concerned, a Samaritan was of lower status than a pig. Samaritans were viewed as subhuman through human eyes. Indeed, the Samaritans as a race were publicly cursed in the synagogues of the day. And the Jews would hold a daily prayer petition that Samaritans would not receive eternal life. They didn't want the Samaritans to be anywhere near them in heaven. Such was their hatred of them. And it's rather a poignant detail, isn't it? Because remember the original question of the expert in the law. It was about eternal life. Now Jesus could have told a story about a noble Jew helping a hated Samaritan, and that would have been bad enough. But to choose the hated Samaritan as the hero was completely unthinkable. Uh, I suppose in modern terms, this is even more shocking than if someone were to go today to a rally of the Ku Klux Klan and start telling a story about the good Afro-American. It's more inflammatory than that. And what Jesus has done is come to the very heart of, of Israel's religious personification in these characters of the priest and the Levite, who both fail miserably in their practical love. Instead of the expected, Jesus chooses a Samaritan to be the hero. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And you know that word pity, or it's compassion in other translations, is the same word that has its roots for other words that mean innards or guts. And so what we have here is the Samaritan having a deep felt reaction. We might call it a gut reaction. He was completely emotionally bowled over by this pathetic scene that he saw of the robber victim. So deep was the Samaritan's pity that his compassion is immediately translated into the action of love. And we read the details of how the Samaritan addresses the need of the victim. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins And gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So the courage of this Samaritan is first demonstrated when he actually stops in the desert. For it may well be that the bandits were still in the area. But the real bravery is seen in the final act of compassion at the inn. Again, we may not think about this, but it would have been especially risky for a Samaritan to be seen with a Jew within Jewish territory. That was more dangerous than the possibility of the bandits coming back. But he was willing to do all of that and to pay the price of any needs that the victim had. And what we have here is a wonderful reversal of what had happened to the victim. The robbers robbed the man, the Samaritan pays for him. The robbers leave the man dying, the Samaritan leaves him taken care of. The robbers abandon the man, the Samaritan promises to return. And so in telling this parable, Jesus completely reshapes the lawyer's question. He's not going to give the lawyer a list. Jesus refuses to actually tell the lawyer who is and who is not his neighbor. So the real question becomes, to whom must you become a neighbor? And this is where the dialogue continues. Because Jesus now directs a question at the expert in the law. Which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. The expert in the law knows the answer. I mean, it's blindingly obvious, isn't it? It's the Samaritan. But the expert in the law cannot quite bring himself to use the word. Instead of saying the Samaritan, he replies the one who had mercy on him. And so we have this famous parable, and maybe we should leave it there. But if we do that, then we're missing the final point, which is for you and for me. Because the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You and I, as Christians, are inheritors of eternal life. We do not need to ask that first question that the expert in the law asked. But we do need to hear the challenge that Jesus has set before us. When he says, concerning our neighbours, go and do likewise. And you know, you and I, as a matter of Christian definition... We should love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind. And we should love our neighbours as ourselves. But the question that we should ponder is this Are we mere theoreticians when it comes to our neighbours, or do we practice what we preach? Uh, John, in his first letter, leaves us with no option, I think, uh, because he writes, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So you and I are to show love to our neighbours, and we are instructed that mere words are not enough Actions is what it takes. But there's another thought from the, this parable that was told. You know, the priest and the Levite actually did no harm to the victim. They didn't attack him, they didn't rob him, they didn't violate him in any way. And don't we hear that as a very common excuse amongst society today? Many will say in their own defense, Well, I don't do any harm. But the question is, do you do any good? So I guess the question for you and me is, who do we mirror? Are we the priest and the Levite, the respectable churchgoers, the folks who go to church religiously week by week, so wrapped up in our religion that we cannot possibly spare a moment for the needy who are outside our church? It's a bit harsh, isn't it? And you know it's all too easy for us to make excuses, we're, we're, we're busy people, we have our families to look after, um, to get involved with the needy could actually deflect us from vital church work, couldn't it? But the message from Jesus is very simple, he says go and do likewise. So we must avoid being tempted to pass on the other side. Let us be that Samaritan in Lum and the surrounding area in which we live. Let us be the Samaritan in our places of work. That's a difficult one. Let us be that Samaritan in our extended families. It's a really serious challenge, isn't it? You see, if we profess to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength and with all our mind... Then let us remember too our obligation as God's children and as heirs of eternal life to also love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is not a theoretical proposition, but one that requires practical reality. Jesus said to the expert in the law, Do this and you are living. And he says the same to each one of us today Do this and you are living. Do this and I am living. So let us be like the Samaritan. No limits, no boundaries, no excuses. But what should we actually do? You know, I've never actually seen a victim of a robbery in my life. And just maybe I never shall. I mean, it's not an everyday experience in this sleepy part of Rossendale. Lum is a safe place, isn't it? So maybe I can fully commit to this after all. Um... I am completely ready to look after a robbery victim, aren't I? Um, safe in the knowledge that it's probably unlikely to happen. But if we take that conclusion, we've missed a point. Because as we truly look around within the district in which we live, when we look around Lum, what do we see? We see that it's littered with dying victims, those who desperately need the healing strength of the gospel. This is where you and I need to be the Good Samaritan. We've been thinking about this 40 days of sharing the gospel. We've got our little cards. So this is a parable for us, isn't it? Jesus says, go and do likewise. We cannot, in all honesty, keep the gospel to ourselves. For to do so would be to be like the priest and the Levite. And that's simply not enough. They did no harm, but they did no good either. They studied God's word, I'm sure, every day. They met together to pray, probably every day, but they failed to do what they needed to do to God's glory outside of the synagogue. And notice so that the Samaritan was the one who took considerable risk, and he was the only one deemed by Jesus to actually have done good for the victim. And it's at that point he says, go and do likewise. So let us remember these words of Jesus because they are so very important. And let us realize that the challenge is for us to show love and compassion for the spiritually lost, the spiritually dying. Those who need to hear the gospel message. And you know it's costly to do this. This is not a trivial thing and it will be uncomfortable. But we cannot afford to be selective because the gospel is for everyone and that includes those who we might not quite be comfortable to sit next to in our church. Do bear that in mind. So Jesus has left us with a very direct and radical challenge. So shall we be Samaritans? I sincerely hope so, and with God's help, the answer surely must be an emphatic yes.